0: We are continuing our deep dive this morning into the final charge that Christ has given to his disciples in the last few chapters of the book of John. And so I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 14 this morning. We're going to read John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. That's page 764, if you're using your Red Pew Bible. John chapter 14, verses 12 to verse 14. I tell you the truth. Anyone who, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. It's great to see you. It's great to be together again. I hope the feeling is mutual. It's great. Thank you, Pat. can always count on Pat for an amen. If I'm looking a little different to you this morning, it's because you're now looking at a homeowner. Yeah. Yeah. So we got possession of our house this week and moved in yesterday, so it's been busy week, but Shel uh, and I are both really excited. So, this morning we're looking at three verses, and in these three short verses, there are two incredible promises that Jesus gives. Two promises that when we think about them on the on plain reading and on just a, a, a level that um, we give attention to, you'll see that... They should give us tremendous hope. The verses um, point to this um, tremendous hope that Jesus is going to accomplish something amazing. He makes two promises. One is that that we are his followers are going to do something even greater than what Jesus did. And the second promise is that whatever we ask for in his name... He will give to us. These are two pretty significant promises. And they should, and I think they ought to, fill us with hope and excitement and confidence as we go about our faith and seek to live as Jesus taught us to live. But these are also really hard sayings of Jesus, if we're being honest. Because I think that these are two promises that we most often struggle with as to not feeling like the truth of the promise is being experienced in our in our lives. I found even as I began to prepare this for this message this week and I began to read some commentaries and, and to think about these verses, I almost had a defensive posture that I needed to defend these claims because I think there's a sense and there, there's a part of me that we feel like, well, This isn't actually true. What does he mean by greater things? And what does he mean by whatever we ask in his name that he's going to give us? It doesn't feel like, at least to some degree, the experience that we have with following Jesus. And so I want to pause this morning and ask God to help us with these verses. Because it's, it's good to ask questions. We should do our homework, and that's what I try to do this week. We should ask questions about the meaning of this. But I think there is something, there's a temptation in here towards cynicism, towards cynicism and towards these promises that I, I think we need to just recognize and, and push against. And so um, let's just ask God's help for this as we, as we go into these verses. And so, God, we come to you this morning. We don't want to hide our doubts or our fears from you. Uh, But we also don't want to think wrongly about you. We don't want to have an impression of you that's not accurate. We don't want our emotions to be based on something that's not true of you. And so would you help us this morning? Would you keep our hearts soft? Would you speak to us by your Spirit the message that we need to, to hear this morning? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, have you ever had the thought, if only Jesus existed today, like if only he, he was walking around today, that it would be so much easier to follow him? That if we, that if, if we were uh, back in the time when Jesus was alive and walking around, um, that if we were part of those crowds that were interacting with him, if we were his disciples, then it would actually be so much easier to follow him. You know, he could teach us directly. You know, he could encourage us. We would just probably feel this like real excitement and it would just be so much easier to have faith in him when we were actually with him physically and, and seeing these miracles happen right in front of our eyes. And wouldn't that just be easier? I've had that thought lots. And I think many of us can think that but here's uh why I think that's actually a wrong thought I think there's we have two reasons to think that that's not actually it wouldn't actually be better the The first reason is the the four gospels show there's a the record of lots of people interacting with jesus the four, The record of the four gospels shows us that the people that were around Jesus uh, didn't experience this great easy-to-follow-him sensation. You know, some of his closest friends denied him. They betrayed him. The one that was considered to be his best friend ran away from him at the time when he was in most need. Most people just had no idea what Jesus was talking about. They were just, he was speaking to them, and they were just completely going over the head. They were misunderstanding on so many different levels what Jesus was saying. Many people actually thought that he was insane. He was compelling and could draw a crowd, and there was interesting what he was doing, but there's very little recognition, at least during the three years of his ministry here on earth, of who he was. And so we look back to the record of people that were with him when he was on earth in physical form walking around. We see that that was not actually their experience. The second reason I don't think that's actually a good idea is that Jesus promised to his disciples that he would go around and that actually him leaving would be better that Jesus leaving would be better it would be easier actually with with him going back to the father than if he were still around Jesus says this that it would be easier not harder and so we can hear those statements, and again, I think we hear those statements, we say, yeah, okay. Yeah, I agree with that. That's what we're saying out loud. Yeah, okay, yeah. But in our hearts, we're going, "Nope, there's no way that would be easier. There's no way. How is it better that he's gone? See, this is this, uh, these, these three verses are in this, the, this middle of this private conversations that Jesus is having with his disciples. And Uh, we we looked over the last few weeks, Jesus makes a statement about how he's going to go away. He's going to the Father's house. He's going to prepare a room for us. And the disciples have some responses, and we looked at Thomas' first responses. How do we know the way? How do we know the way to that? The second response from Philip is, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And then Jesus begins to transition in in his teaching towards the idea, and this is really the first significant teaching on the Holy Spirit, right, right after the verses to follow, and that's what we're going to be looking at more closely next week. But these are kind of, the, these sentences are the, the run-up to this thought, that Jesus is sending a helper. He's sending someone that's going to help us, to advocate for us, and there's something better about that way in which we can relate to God that's better than his physical presence with us. That it's going to be an entirely new way to relate to God. And it's actually the most significant step in God's history of redemption throughout, throughout all of time that this event that's going to happen is going to be the most significant step that we could take in how we can relate to God and how that affects our ability to live by faith and experience God so it 's extremely important to realize that the promises that Jesus is making in in these statements are you cannot disconnect them from the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives he 's connecting them directly to that it 's the next it 's the next words out of his mouth and we 're only looking at these three verses of this morning, but it 's all one sentence it 's all one thought in in when Jesus is actually speaking, and so we can 't disconnect it to that from that and so you know, I, I, I've heard it said from a few, uh, a few I've heard this around, a few, around the church circles, that there's different denominations that like to emphasize different parts of the Holy Spirit. Or sorry, different parts of the Trinity. So you have like the more reformed churches. They really like to, they really like to emphasize the role of the Father. Right? And you have the, the Pentecostal churches, and they, they really like to put emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. And then you have the Baptists, and they really like to put the emphasis on the Holy Scriptures. Oh wait, never mind, that's not a member of the Trinity. That's a bad church joke, I apologize. As I was talking, I was debating, should I make this joke? And anyways, we belong to a whole group of churches called Anabaptists, and I mean, we're talking very generally here, but typically you could say that, or stereotypically you could say that Anabaptists generally put a greater degree of emphasis on Jesus, okay? Um, Obviously, every every expression of the church is, is seeking to honor the whole expression of the Trinity, but there's always kind of a drift in how we begin to talk and what we emphasize and what we spend less time talking about. And so, if you grew up in this church, or you grew up in churches like this church, it's it's probable that you've had less, um, you've spent less time thinking about an experience with the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the the way that we relate to God through the Holy Spirit, and of course we're seeking, as a church, we're seeking to 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 be holistic in our in our teaching. But I, I think we have to admit on some level that we. We, if you go to a different type of church there 's going to be a, a way more um, the emphasis placed on the role of the Holy Spirit and how we relate to god and so we part of the humility of the of the of the church is having the willingness to say that there's even though we 're seeking our best to be full in our teaching we 're always going to be blind to something and we 're going to be we can 't emphasize everything all the time, and so we 're going to um, to be a little bit um, our, our thinking is always going to be a, a bit misguided, and so with the awareness that within our church and within the the church, the greater church family that throughout church history that this church is a part of, that that um, the the role of the Holy Spirit has not been as as emphasized, and so we need to really press into that truth as we go into these promises. And so that's kind of the, and again, as Kevin speaks next week, that's the emphasis I want us to keep on coming back to, is how does this make sense when we're thinking about God relating to us through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit in our lives. So the first promise, promise number one in verse 12. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Jesus has been appealing for faith from his disciples. Over and over again throughout his his 3 years he's saying have faith in me, trust me, have faith in me, trust me. And then he gives them this promise that as I go from here, you're going to do even greater things than what you've been seeing. So the question that we have to ask as we go into this is what does it mean when Jesus says greater things? What does greater things mean? And so a few things I think that it can't mean. Greater things can't mean just deeds of love or humility or acts of love. That can be a way that we could kind of just easily dismiss what this is saying. Minimize it and say, Love is so great that if you just love someone, that's even better than doing miracles. That's even better than, you know, healing someone that's been born blind. Because love is just this amazing thing. If we can love people, that's amazing. Yes, love is amazing. Acts of love have incredible power. But I don't think it's fair to say when we're looking at this passage that Jesus is meaning just acts of love. So greater works can't mean just profound acts of love or sacrifice. It also cannot mean simply more works. So you could make the case, well, if you think about it, Jesus was just doing, you know, he was on his own and he was doing the works of his ministry for three years. And if you if start thinking about the church and how it multiplied and there's all sorts of, there's lots of things happening. And there's, if you read the book of Acts, there's all sorts of miracles happening all over the place. So it's greater in the sense that it's, it's, it's happening more often and more frequently because of the number of people that are now involved. It's not restricted to, to simply Jesus. But that's not really a fair interpretation of this more or greater works as well. There's much easier way to say that in Greek than what than the word that um, is used here by John. And so it can't mean just great acts of love and sacrifice. It can't mean just an increase in the number of works. And it can't mean... I don't think it's fair to say that it can be more spectacular works or supernatural works. Because if you look at, if you look at the life of Jesus and what the miracles that he actually performed, you know, he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He, he healed people that had been suffering from illness their entire lives. And in a moment they're healed. You know, if, if what's, what's greater or more supernatural than someone being raised from the dead? I, I don't think, I don't, so, so it doesn't actually work to say greater in the sense that it's going to be more amazing and we're going to be more in awe of, the, of what Jesus did because Jesus did really the maximum amount of what you could do for a miracle and it'd be impressive. So it's not really fair to say it's going to be greater in that sense Either. So what does it mean? Jesus is saying we're going to do greater works than him. What, does that, what could that mean? I think there's two clues. The one is that if you read it to the end, it says, because I am going to the Father. Jesus says you're going to be doing greater works because I'm going to the Father. And there's another, there's another place in, the, in, the, in John's Gospel where Jesus talks about this same kind of idea as well. In uh, John 5, verse 20, it says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, and He will show Him even greater works than these, so that ye will be amazed. It says, The Father is going to show you through Jesus an even greater work than the miracles Jesus had been performing up until then. And it's for the purpose of their amazement. That Jesus has been doing Lots of amazing works, and it's, it's been impressing them, and they're in awe. But it says here that the Father is going to do an even more uh, greater work, and it's going to be for your amazement. Secondly, Jesus says that he's going to be for the Father. It's because he's going to the Father. So Jesus' disciples are going to be perform greater works because Jesus went to the Father because Jesus went with his father. So Jesus' works during his life were incredible miracles, but it's important to, to pause and recognize that they are but a shadow of the substance of Jesus' atoning death and resurrection. That even the most Amazing miracle that you could see. If you're at this wedding and thus this water gets turned to wine, you're like, that's amazing. How in the world could that possibly happen? That is absolutely nothing compared to the amazement we should have when we look at the cross and say, This is God defeating the powers against him and finding a way for a God who is holy, holy, holy. To make a way for sinners like us to come back to him. The driving question through all of scripture. Or I should say one of the driving questions throughout all of scripture. Is how in the world is a God who is perfect. Who is holy. Be in the presence of anything that is not that how how can that happen that's that's the that's a driving question of the of the writers of the old testament how could this possibly happen and when we look to the cross of jesus going to the father it's this profound miracle that god the god of love has found a way he's found a way for us to come back to him d a carson says that in short the works that the disciples perform after the resurrection are greater than those done by Jesus before his death, insofar as they belong to an age of clarity and power introduced by Jesus' sacrifice and exaltation. The church gets to be a part of that power, the power of the cross. Ravi Zacharias, who's a a well-known Christian apologist, has often said that Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. Someone coming to faith in Jesus is a spiritually dead person coming alive. I think we vastly underestimate the miracle of this. That you can be dead towards God and he can waken you up. You can come back from the dead. I think, especially here in the West, we have this feeling like the the power of the gospel is actually it, it, it's it's losing its effectiveness. That more and more people are walking away from faith, and that is the gospel. Does it really have power to change lives? I think I think we often struggle with that, and it hinders our boldness. In evangelism, because of we don't actually believe that the message of Jesus has the power to change lives. I heard recently some stats about uh, Christianity on a global perspective, specifically regarding China. In 1958, China um, and Mao's wife declared that Christianity is dead. It's been confined to museums. It's dead and buried. That's what Mao's wife said in 1958 about Christianity. There was a team of delegates that went to China from the U.S. in the 1970s, and they declared this, there is not a single Christian in China. In 2014, the government of China released a report that said there are over 50 million Christians in China. In 2018, they released a new report that said there's over 70 million christians in china in the course of 4 years 20 million people have been brought back from the dead you know there's a sense that we have here of discouragement oh there's the like, what is god doing is is he is he changing lives at all i don't know if you've ever felt that way listen on a global perspective the power of the gospel is going out. And we are actually in the middle of the, the the most significant time in history of people coming to faith in Jesus. Around the world, there's never been a time like this throughout all of church history when people have been coming back to Jesus. It's amazing. This is, and, and I, again, I don't want to just cheapen the 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 greaterness of Jesus' response here and say, oh, it's just about people coming to faith and say, well, you know, that's not really that amazing. No, we need to repent of that and say, it's amazing. It's amazing that people can come to faith, that God has the power to bring spiritually dead people back to life. That should give us incredible confidence as the church that we get to be a part of that. God, help us when we doubt the power Of grace. It's because he's going to the Father that you're going to be doing greater things. The second promise. says, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. How should we understand this promise? Is it saying... Is Jesus saying that you can ask the Father for anything, regardless of how stupid, selfish, or hurtful it is, and God's going to give it to you? Is that what he's saying? Is that what anything means? That it doesn't matter how ridiculous the claim is, that you'll get it. So long as you tack on the line in Jesus' name at the end. I think we know that that can't be true, nor would we want that to be true, actually. You may want it to be true for you, but you don't want it to be true for everyone else as well. That would create chaos pretty quickly, I think. So there's something about what we're asking for, and there's something about the phrase in my name that has to be properly understood. To get for us to understand what Jesus is saying, does that make sense? That we it, it, on two fronts, it can't be just simply what, anything means anything, and it can't simply mean just saying the phrase in Jesus' name and then it, it it's done. So, what do we mean? You may. What does He mean? You may ask for anything. What we're asking for is always dependent on what our hearts are wanting. What you're asking God for is always a reflection of where your heart is at, and what you're longing for. That's where that's where our asks flow out of. In John four, 5, in First John five fourteen fifteen, we're kind of given again this language, similar language is used, and we're given a clue about this idea. It says, "This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have." What we have asked of him. So there's that phrase. According to his will. Are our hearts in line with what the will of God is? Are our hearts in line with what the will of God is? Are our hearts so sensitive. To the Holy Spirit. That we're so in tune with what God wants. Not only on a macro level. Not only on a, a global perspective of what God wants globally and the kingdom of God globally, but even on a micro level. What is God wanting on a micro level? You see in the in the book of Acts as the church is spreading and they're they're listening to the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit they're they're not going to a town because the Holy Spirit's not letting them go to a town? So are we are we Are we seeking his face? Are we in the word? Are we so we can understand his voice better? Are we seeking him with all of who we are so that we can actually better hear him and have our hearts better conform to actually what he wants? And so, of course, this factor of what's our heart's disposition is the is the influencing factor of what we're actually asking him for so that's important to point out the second th- thing is what does it mean in my name what does in the name mean is in the name just this magical formula you know is it, can you just say okay so i'm going to get this okay i'm going to say abracadabra and then boom it's happened it's little little magic trick engagement for you. Is it like that? Can you just say abracadabra and it's gone? Is that how in in Jesus' name works? Of course not. And so, in the name is often, in many cultures, refers to the character or the authority of the thing you're invoking. So, I was thinking about that. I think it's kind of like a cop saying, stop in the name of the law. That stop doing what you're doing because it's not in line with with what the law says is good and right. You need to stop doing that. And I'm the one saying to stop doing it because I have the authority of the societal agreement that I have the right to tell you this and enforce this. So I'm doing this in the name of the law and what the law represents in our land. And so I think that praying in Jesus' name is in a sense like praying like stop in the name of the law in that you're saying we're agreeing that this is in line with the will of the father that this is in line with the character of what jesus wants this is in line with the authority that he says that he has and we agree with that and we say in that in that name do we say these things And so it's not just a tagline. It's not just this abracadabra. Then it happens. There's, there's a seeking. There's a, a heart change. And the, it's a seeking to understand what, is it, what does it in the name mean? What does it mean for this? Is in the situation that we pray in line with the will of the Father, that we represent what he wants and the authority he wants to have in this situation. There is always a tension in prayer to manage. And I've experienced this on both ends in my life. That prayer is about God changing what's inside of us. But prayer is also about changing what's outside of us. That if if we come to God and we're praying just for things to happen. It's just, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to get that done. And there's no reflection on what is actually happening inside of us. And you're missing out on what prayer is about. It's changing the posture of your heart, breaking the independent spirit that's inside of us and creating a dependency on him. But if you're just pressing into that and not actually believing that he has the ability to change the outcome of situations, then, then our prayers are actually not going to be very bold and we're not going to actually have faith that he can do anything outside of us. That you actually you can actually start praying. It's, it's as if you're not even talking to God sometimes when, when you're praying. You're just saying things that seem humble and, and you're seeking to be contrite in some way. But we're not actually asking and talking to the Father as if he can go and accomplish something. And so there's, there's this tension to manage. And if, you're, if it's just about introspection and God changing our hearts we're going to get into trouble. And if it's just about asking God to accomplish th- things and there's not, nothing to do about changing with, what's within us, then again, we're going to get into trouble. And so there's always this tension of seeking and, and trying to do both these things at once. It's about changing us, but it's actually about asking God to uphold his promises and, and do things that he says that he can do. but what happens and of course this is what i was th- probably maybe what you've been thinking this whole time i don't know how skeptical you are but what happens when we gather together and we pray and we feel like this is what god would want we feel like this is in line with his character This is in line with what he would want to do. This is in line with what he's against. What happens when we gather together and to the best of our ability, we're seeking his face for things that he would want. And we don't seem to get the answer that we've asked for. What do we do with that? What do we do with this promise In light of that feeling that I'm sure all of us at some point in our life have had or are having right now. I don't want to pretend like I have an easy answer to this question. I don't have an easy answer for myself. And I certainly wouldn't want to answer a cliche, give a cliche answer to you as you are wrestling with that. And I think we should be very careful to listen to anyone who offers a very easy answer. But I just want to offer a few thoughts in response. And as we come to a close. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God would allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. I know, I know that's a hard statement. But just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. I don't think it's helpful to start saying, see, this is the reason why this happened, or this is the reason why it's happening. But I do think it's helpful for our hearts to remind ourselves and to remind each other of God's perspective that is so much different than ours. And just because we can't f- possibly understand or feel why something could happen doesn't mean from God's eternal perspective that there, there might be something He's allowing here that, that we can't see and probably may never see until, until we cross over into glory. We get into spiritual trouble, not, I think, when we start to question why God does or does not do certain things. I don't think the danger is in asking him why you are or why you are not doing something. The danger for us spiritually is when we start to question his goodness and his love in the midst of it. Corrie ten Boom, who is a a well-known figure from World War II, she was a Dutch watchmaker and a Christian she helped save the lives of many Jews from the, from the Holocaust. And you can, you can visit her home just outside of Amsterdam where this happened. There's a museum in Amsterdam. Had an opportunity to, to, to check that out one time on a layover to Brundy. And there you will read uh, a, a poem that she wrote that's, that's um, become well known. She says, Life is but a weaving. Said, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors, He weaveth steadily. Oftentimes He weaveth sorrow, and I, in foolish pride, forget He sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. The picture of this this weaving has been a helpful picture for me in my life. To look up and see the mess. What can look like a mess. And to think that... What could that one thread... What, what good could that one thread possibly serve in this whole thing? But I think this, this picture of God's perspective is so important to have. That when you look from, a, from the upper perspective... The one who is infinitely wise. And whose perspective is eternal... That there, there might be something we're missing. Can we have the humility to say that there might be something? I, I don't want to offer a reason as to why, but can we agree that there might be something we're missing in the midst of sorrow when we feel like, God, we're praying for this, but it's not happening. What are you doing? The two key ideas in this passage in these promises is that Jesus is going to the Father and that he's sending the Spirit. The only way Jesus can go to the Father is to first go to the cross. Jesus did not abandon us despite all his own suffering. Do you think that he would abandon you in the midst of yours? We don't know why God doesn't respond in the way that we think he should sometimes. But we can say together why it can't be. It can't be because he doesn't love us. That's what the cross shows. The cross shows that he loves us. That that's our that's what we cling to, that he loves us. He loves you and he loves the the ones that might be of being affected by something that you don't want them to be affected by. He loves them. He loves you. That's what the cross gives us the confidence in, that he had to go to the Father, which means he had to go to the cross. The second important thing to remember in the midst of these promises that Jesus emphasizes that he's sending the Spirit. That's what he says just a few verses later. We'll look at it next week. He's sending the Spirit, And this is, this is what he says of why he's sending the Spirit. So that we will not be left as orphans. He's sending the Spirit so that we will not be left as orphans. We're his children. And he loves us. He can't be against you. He loves you. He can't be distant from you. His Spirit is near to you. This is the hope of the gospel and this is the confidence we have when we read promises like this. And so let's pray there. <clears throat> so Father, we we come to you and Father, I pray that you would embolden us as a congregation, as a church family, to press more into these promises. Father, it's... I think this is what we need to grow in. You need to push us towards that. We need to believe these promises more. Father, I pray against cynicism. I pray against skepticism. Father, I pray that you would, again, remind us, convince us, help us to look to the cross to know that you went to the Father because you love us you sent your spirit because you don't want to leave us as orphans because you want to be with us and so push us push us towards f- more complete belief in what you've said here to us this morning we believe there's more that you want to do there's we believe there's greater things that you want to do through us we believe that you're capable We believe that the gospel has the power to save. And so, Father, would you be working both in us, but would you be working through us to accomplish many more things? Pray these things in the name of Jesus.